0: This, this is, is the Buck, Buck Sexton, Sexton Show, where the mission, mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence.
1: One, all, training. make no mistake, America, great, you great American, again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins, former CIA analyst, former member of the NYPD, he's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now,
2: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. I say Slater sorry, this is Team Buck, the Freedom Hut. Wonderful to sit in again for the great Buck Sexton. Buck's going to be back on on Monday for So My name is Mike Slater. Uh, live out here in San Diego, and Buck and I have worked together like, all the time. Like every <laughs> everywhere we go, we always end up working together, and it's an honor to fill in him again for in fill in for him again today. Uh, I want to start with this. I know Buck's talked about this a lot, and I just want to drive this point home and and start the show here and set the stage for the day. Uh, I want to talk about moral courage, how badly we need it, because there are moral imperialists out there, and conservatives, Christians in particular, but conservatives have caved for far too long. Let me back it up here. So out of nowhere, every once in a while, the New York Times will publish a story about polyamory, right? Every once in a while, there's a story about polyamory. So here, here's one just the other day. The polyparent households are coming. You're like, what? Polyamory would be like your thruple, right? It's like three or more people get married all together and whatever, right? You're like, why are you publishing this? But it happens all the time. So I'm just roll through. These are called, these are all New York Times headlines. The challenges of polyamorous parenting. First try the pastrami, then the polyamory. Happily ever open. Is an open marriage a happier marriage? I got more. Dating experts explain polyamory and open relationships. My daughter's dating a polyamorous woman, but that's not the problem. The, the challenges of poly, polyamory, I uh, hear hopelessly devoted to you, you, and you. And it goes on and on like this. This is all New York Times the like, what, what in the world? These people are pushing something on you. This is just one of many, many examples, right? But they're pushing things on you. They're throwing it out there, trying to move the Overton window of acceptability just a little bit in the left direction, trying to normalize things a little bit, break down some traditional norms. Who are you to say that polyamory is bad? Who are you to say? Sure, you've never heard of it until this article here, but we're going to be sure to shove it in your face as much as we can until you think it's normal. Or at least until you can say, well, you know, maybe it's, it's just another lifestyle choice is all. This is how the left does it. This is how the moral imperialists do it, which I'll define in a second. They throw something out there, something ridiculous like this, and they say, oh, you can't judge. Right, so they weaponize a scripture taken out of context against you, because they know it'll work against you, right? Christians in particular. They say, oh, you can't judge. Who are you to judge? Then you have to be tolerant of it. Then you have to accept it. Then you must declare that it is good. That's the final step. You must declare it is good. That is the digression of everything. And here's the craziest thing. It goes slowly, 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 then bam. California, 2008, California had a statewide ballot measure, it was Prop 8, that defined marriage between a man and a woman, and it passed 42, or excuse me, 52 to 48, 52% in California defined marriage as a man and a woman. That was only 12 years ago, so as recently as 2008, gay marriage wasn't accepted in California, and now it's game on, obviously is right? so like, no, 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 no. And then, pff, obviously, everyone must. you got to celebrate it, right? Marijuana legalization, what, whatever you think about it, the point is, no, 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 no. And now it's an essential service. <laughs> right? so, so it went from being illegal like two years ago to now it's an essential service. <laughs> Boom, just like that. And with all the social issues in particular, conservatives cave because they're so scared. And in particular, they're, they're scared of being called a bigot. You know, racism is is quite a charge, right? But I think bigot is is even worse. I think that's the, the thing that people are most scared of being called. Support gay marriage, bigot. Support abortion, bigot. Be an anti-racist, bigot. Vote for Kamala Harris, bigot. You're always a bigot. We're so scared of being called a bigot. We just cave. And then the left takes that moral high ground. We had the moral high ground. You had the moral high ground. And we ran away. We fell in the fetal position. We go, oh, I don't want to be called a bigot. And these people took it. All right, that was all my intro to uh, this clip. This is Darren Beatty. He's from the Claremont Institute. He was a speechwriter for Trump for a period of time, but uh, here he is speaking to this.
3: Because the Republicans are so obsessed with proving they're not racist, and racist is a term owned and controlled by the left, they will never have the moral high ground. And... Moral imperialism always beats individual indifference. And what I mean by that is, this put, juxtapose the slogan, silence is violence, with don't tread on me. Silence is violence is morally imperialistic, and it will always beat don't tread on me. And it registers the fact that the left, for all its faults, has the moral high ground, And that's why they win. And so until Republicans can be just as confident in being protectors of civilization against barbarism and destruction and defend civilization as such with the same kind of moral fervor that the left attempts to tear it down with words like racism, until they're prepared to do that, they will lose.
2: Love that line. Moral imperialism will always beat moral indifference. And it will certainly always beat moral cowardice. No no doubt about that. So what is um, moral imperialism? Before I define it, I'll, I'll show it to you. So this was this weekend in Washington, D.C. It was a group of maybe like 200 or so protesters. They went to a restaurant, and everyone was out you know, sitting on the, the front of the restaurant outside. And these protesters all stood directly around everyone and circled everyone with giant signs and everything, and uh, did this.
3: Black people are dying in the hands of police. Black people are dying at the hands of police. Yeah. Even at yeah. the time that you are dying. Yeah. even at the time that you are dying. so we ask you, so we, we ask you, to you declare your loyalty. To declare your loyalty. If you believe. If you, you believe, believe that black lives, matter, black lives matter, and I want to repeat this if you believe, if you believe not because you're just woke, you're you truly believe that you, people, you totally believe that you love black people, I ask you to raise your fist up in the air. Look around you. The people that have not raised their fist, okay. and ask the question: Ask the question. Why
0: can you afford to stand in native land?
3: Why can you afford land
0: and still be racist? As and still
3: be and still think, and still think that you still be a Becky. And if you <laughs> still be a Becky, still be a Becky. Still be a Becky. And live off the live off
2: and live and, uh, the death of black and brown people. Okay. On forever. And everyone at the restaurant, they're all white people there, everyone at the restaurant raises their fist in the air and repeats after that guy. Now, what they're saying, I'm not, we don't have time to talk about what they're saying. It's, like, it's all nonsense. I'm not going to argue against what they're saying. I want to point out the tactic. They can do that. Right? They can go to a restaurant and shut it down and shame everyone into throwing the black power fist in the air. They can pull that stunt because they are moral imperialists. The left, they're not punished for looting or vandalism or assault or actual crimes. So they're certainly not going to get in trouble for stuff like this. Because they have, well, they act like they have the moral high ground. We act like they have the moral high ground. We let them act like they have the moral high ground. Because they're the moral imperialists. It's an actual term. It's not a made-up term. It's existed for a long time in like geopolitical uh, studies. Uh, It's defined as uh, a moral imperialist is the imposition of a set of moral values onto a culture that does not share those values either through force or through cultural criticism let me i take a break here. i want to come back i want to give you an example from yesterday of of this inaction politically we'll do that next mike slater filling in for the great buck sexton spread the word <laughs>
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: What's up,
2: Freedom Hut? Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Let let me keep this party going here. So we're talking about moral imperialists uh, and how they will always be. So moral indifference uh, always caves to moral imperialism. This is Darren Beattie. One more clip from him. And having
3: the moral high ground gives you the confidence to hold frame in a discussion. If you'll allow me, I'd like to kind of reformulate what I mean by this. There's a lot of conservatives have this idea of we're the responsible adults and the left are these misguided children, but they're misguided on the basis of more or less just principles, equality and so forth. And as long as you have this idea that we're the responsible adults, but they are the irresponsible children, but animated by a just moral principle, again, you will always lose because the moral indifference always caves to moral imperialism and moral fervor. And the right, not just the right, really just any American who looks at what's happening is disgusted by it, needs to fortify themselves with this sense of moral fervor. That what's happening is wrong, and not only are you just going to sit back and say it's wrong, but you are going to defend against it with the same kind of conviction, the same kind of fervor, the same kind of aggressiveness, and even imperialism that the left uses to destroy everything that is just and beautiful and elevated.
2: Give me an example. We'll see if you are morally indifferent to this or not. Uh, state senator from San Francisco, so state, so California state senator, San Francisco, Scott Weiner, he would change the sex offender registration laws. Okay? So that's what this bill would do. So when this law passes, if a teenager, 14 to 17, has sex with an adult who is 10 years older or less, so if a 14 year old has sex with a 24 year old, let me flip it around. If a 24-year-old has sex with a 14-year-old or a 27-year-old has sex with a 17-year-old, for instance, that adult is not automatically going to be put on the sex offender registry list. Okay? So this is to protect gay people who are having sex with underage minors. Now, the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle said, Bill aims to fix sex offender lists Inequity toward gay men. So if you are morally opposed to 27-year-olds having sex with 17-year-olds or 24-year-olds having sex with 14-year-old boys, if you're morally opposed to that, well, what are you... What are you... What are you some sort of bigot? It's just inequality. He's, He's just fighting for equality. Don't you like equality? Are you against... Oh, you're... You're, you're, a, you're a homophobe. Wow. He literally, the guy, State Senator Weiner, he literally said, this is such horrific homophobia. So you're a homophobe. You're a bigot. You have to support this bill in the name of equality. <laughs> See how they do it? That's moral imperialism. Imposition of a set of morals onto a culture that do not share those values, either through force or through cultural criticism. That's what this is. It's shaming. I want to read this from uh, a writer at Revolver. He said, today's left is not well-intentioned. And this goes back to what Darren Beattie said, that the people, uh, these, the people on the left are not animated by a just moral principle. Today's left is not well-intentioned. They are, merely, they are not merely misguided in the pursuit of moral good. Today's left pursues moral evils. And they're not shy in telling you this. They deny any difference between men and women. They want you to mutilate your children if they deviate from predefined personality types. They attack marriage and the family and celebrate deviancy and child abuse. They reject justice and accountability and blame or exonerate based on group affiliation. They say they, they attack the successful and celebrate the violent. The left seeks to upend traditional morality and replace it with social justice in order to indict American society as structurally racist and the American people as hopelessly racist merely by the fact that they live in such a society. So it's tricky. What do you do? can't just get angry. Right? What do you do? I think the most important thing is to not let people get away with lies. And don't give people an inch of untruthful ground. And don't give them an inch. Don't let them manipulate you at all. Don't, meaning don't use their language. You can't even say things like, Oh yeah, yeah, of course, Black Lives Matter. But I'm against, or I'm I of course, but but I'm against the Marxist group. No, you can't even do that. You can't even use your la- their language because they've already won. Don't give them an inch. You must speak the truth. Yeah, you know, don't be rude for rude's sake. Don't be obscene for obscenity's sake. Of course, be calm, confident, and truthful, always. Uh, the other day on my TV show, Buck and I both have TV shows on the first. Um, the other day, like Tuesday, I think, I talked to a professor at Princeton, a math professor, and he wrote a piece on uh, Quillette. It was called How to Fight the Enemies of Academic Freedom. And this last paragraph is so good. He says uh, he's from Romania, he grew up in communist Romania, so he knows. He said, above all, we have to stop being frightened, intimidated, and afraid to fight back. Stop being frightened and intimidated. And afraid. That's why I love, among other reasons, that's why I love Pastor John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, L.A. He's not afraid to offend in the name of truth. He's not trying to offend. Right? That's not the not trying to offend people. I don't. I don't like flamethrowers. I, I have no time for that. But people who boldly, confidently stand up for the truth, you have to respect that. And we need way more of that. Stop. We need to stop acting like these people, these moral imperialists, are good and just and have a a, a proper moral aim. Or maybe they're just a slightly misguided. No, they are wrong. They're morally wrong. And don't let them flip it around on you. And don't be scared to stand up for the truth because you may be called a bigot. You're not. And when you're courageous, other people will be courageous too. I promise you that. It is infectious. Everyone is so cowardly right now looking around waiting for someone to stand up. Don't give them an inch. Be courageous. Others will join you, I promise. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Uh, let, me, let me come back. The, uh, the math professor at Princeton, he mentioned Solzhenitsyn, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I think it's worth speaking to him to, uh, to see how this can be done properly. So we'll tell uh we'll tell a little bit of his story coming up next. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show Podcast. Remember
0: to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's going on, Freedom Hut? Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Uh I know you're disappointed. But listen, the other day, you got Attorney General Barr. All right, so that's awesome. And today, me. But it evens out. It evens out. So do what we can. Buck will be back on uh, Monday. So the question is: We're just talking about moral imperialism and uh, moral cowardice, or moral indifference. So you have moral imperialism on one side, right? They have the fervor on, right? and they take over the moral high ground, and, and the rest of us are moral cowards or morally indifferent, and we just let them have it—that high ground. And we need to—we need to stop doing that. So the question is: How long? Will we allow the moral imperialists to take over before we finally say no more? No one's willing to defend our statues. Right? So we know that. Right? So, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> so, Okay, good. Or terrible, but okay. Uh, the left, the far left has marched through every institution there is. I, I truly believe that AM Talk Radio... Is the only aspect of popular culture that's not completely controlled by the left? Is that right? Can you think, can you think of anything, any aspect of pop culture? I mean, you would say you'd, you'd say NASCAR would be one. <laughs> i would be like, I don't know if that's true. Sports, like the ultimate meritocracy, but that's not true. What's left? I don't. I think it's AM talk radio. I think you're here. This is it. Yeah, there's pockets on the internet that are conservative, but I, I mean, the internet's controlled by Google. Be real. So this is a bit of an aside, but when Trump wins again in two and a half months, I think the first thing the left is going to do is blame the tech companies for allowing Trump and therefore conservatives to have a platform. They're going to blame Facebook. They're going to blame Twitter for allowing Trump to spew his racist, vile rhetoric for the last four years. And these tech companies are going to be pressured to deplatform the president and then other conservatives with him. And so I, I, re- I think our days are numbered on the internet. I know that sounds dramatic, but uh, I think it's true. Just a couple of months ago, like last month, I think the biggest brands in America, like the, the Coca-Cola, Unilever, Microsoft, Verizon, Samsung, like the Best Buy, like these are the biggest companies in America, stopped advertising with Facebook. Uh, until Facebook does more to stop the circulation of hate speech. Well, what's hate speech? Surely the first half hour of this show was a hate speech by their standards. Right? To them, every single day Buck comes right here and just hurls vile hate speech all day. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't you don't think? These tech companies, you don't think they're going to take down Buck? Of course they will. When Trump wins, this will be the first thing they do in their freakout. How much will conservatives allow? That's the question. Before we say no more, and I know I, know I just mentioned John MacArthur, but I know John MacArthur um, has, has referred to just how amazed really we all should be that so many Christians across the country have said, okay, no more church. That's fine. <laughs> Gavin Newsom, please let me know when I uh, when when you will allow me to go back to church. Right the like, what is that? Geez, that was easy to break up churches in America. That's all that took? It's pretty lukewarm. So the question is, how much will we let the left chisel away at America before we say no more once and for all? So this is an essay from Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, 1974. Solzhenitsyn lived quite a life. Front lines for the Soviet army against the Nazis. Then was uh, put away in a gulag. And got cancer there. and Then... Uh, I don't want to say single-handedly, because there are a lot of forces at play, but one of the most pivotal people in tearing down the Soviet Union intellectually. It's an amazing, amazing life. But anyway, so this is 1974. Uh, this is dated the same day that the secret police broke in and uh, broke into his apartment and arrested him. So this, this was circulated around Moscow's intellectual circles. And there's some pretty amazing lines here. Let me just read a few of them. He said, things have almost reached rock bottom. A universal spiritual death has already touched us all. And physical death will soon flare up and consume us both and our children. But as before, we are still smile in a cowardly way and mumble without tongues tied. I love that. We smile in a cowardly way and mumble without our tongues even being tied. We've been so hopelessly dehumanized that simply for today's modest ration of food, we are willing to abandon all of our principles, our souls, and all the efforts of our predecessors, and all opportunities for our descendants, but just don't disturb our fragile existence. Right? For, so in this case, modest ration of food, but what are you willing to, or you're, you're willing to abandon our principle, uh, people in America, not you, you're here, People in America are willing to abandon our principles, our soul, everything our predecessors have done, and all opportunities for our future, our kids and grandkids. For what? In Solzhenitsyn's case, it was people in the Soviet Union for a modest ration of food. What are we willing to do? Our houses, big houses, steady income. What? He says, we lack staunchness, pride, and enthusiasm. We can see that the young and presumptuous people who thought they would make our country just and happy through terror, bloody revolution, and civil war, were themselves misled. Same thing today with these people who uh, like, oh yeah, utopia. It's just getting rid of one, one bad person away from getting that utopia that we dream of. So Solzhenitsyn said you've got to stand up to the lies. He said when people renounce lies, it cuts short their existence of the lie. Like an infection, lies can exist only in a living organism. That's so good. And in COVID time, right? Uh, It makes sense. Uh, A virus can't replicate itself. It needs to infect a cell in order to to take over the cell and then the cell makes more of the virus. But you put a cell in a Petri dish, it'll stay there forever. It won't replicate itself. It has to take over the host and then trick the host into making more of it. And it's the same thing with a lie. Renounce it, it kills it. A lie can only exist in a living organism. So then Soltaniskan has a list of things that that you should refuse to do. He said, I will not henceforth write, sign, or print in any way a single phrase which distorts the truth. Will not cite out of context a single quotation so as to please someone or to feather his own nest or to to achieve success in his work. Will not subscribe to or buy a newspaper or magazine in which information is distorted and primary facts are concealed. And he said, some at first will lose their jobs. And for young people who want to live with truth, this will in the beginning complicate their young lives very much. Because the required recitations are stuffed with lies and it's necessary to make a choice. If not, let him say to himself, I am in the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and warm.'" If you're not going to do these things that require moral courage, if you're not going to have it, it's fine. Just say to yourself, I'm in the herd and a coward, and it's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and warm. Just admit it. So what's enough? I don't know. We just keep doing this stuff, right? Like, Remember a couple months ago, Drag Queen Story Hour was a thing? <laughs> and it was everywhere. It was all over the place. And no one really stopped it. Right? These moral imperialists took the, took the moral high ground from us, And they said, oh, drag queen story hour, that's good. That's a good, important thing. Bring your kids. Remember that? It was right before COVID, right? And I'm sure it'll be one of the first things they bring back. (laughs) Drag queens would come into libraries and read to little kids. And some were sure to do a little drag show for the gleeful audience as well. And if you were against it, what were you called? How much more ground are we going to let these moral imperialists take? Mike Slater, in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: What's going on, Freedom Hut? Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Uh, I know Buck's mentioned this before, the, the long march through the institutions. I want to give an example here of, well, the moral imperialists deconstructing Something, that's a Marxist term. We're going to deconstruct a thing, redefine its meaning, and build it back up together, uh, up into something that's completely different than what it was before. And people go what went along with it, except for the morally courageous few. So the march through the institution. So uh, Louis Althusser, he's the most relevant guy. Through this, he was a French Marxist in the 50s. Uh, in 1980, he strangled his wife to death aside there but uh so he broke down society into two different entities there was the repressive state apparatus as he called it the repressive state apparatus that was the police and the military and then you had the ideological state apparatus uh and it was that that the that that was going to bring in the marxist revolution karl marx always thought there was going to be a marxist revolution around every corner and it never happened and then gramsci in the 20s thought it was going to happen it never happened and it just kept never happening, never happening, never happening. So so this guy, he said, no, we're going to make it happen by marching through the institutions. So we're going to take over the institutions from within. And he defined the ideological state apparatuses as the church, the education system, the family, the legal system, uh, the political system, but mostly regional, like local and regional, so like school boards. Uh, Trade unions, the press, television, literature, arts, and sports. He even put sports down. And we've seen the left has taken over every single one of those, have they not? How'd they do it? Well, they acted like moral imperialists, and we acted like cowards. But not anymore. That's my encouragement here, not to... Yeah, you know, be mean to us, <laughs> to me. I've been, I'm part of that. I'm done. I'm, i over it. Not, not being a coward anymore. It reminded me of this chapter from uh, this book, Bonhoeffer. Um, uh, what's it called? It's by Metaxas. Uh, it's like Soviet or it's like here, Pastor uh, Bonhoeffer, Pastor Martyr Prophet Spy. So, good book, Eric Metaxas. A uh, good book about, about an amazing man. So. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during Hitler's day. Uh, he was obviously against the Nazis. He was arrested, sent to a prison camp because he dared speech that maybe we shouldn't systematically murder all the Jews. And he was hanged right before the war ended. It was like two and a half weeks before Hitler killed himself. He was hanged, Bonhoeffer. So there's a chapter in this book about what the Nazis did to the church and how they deconstructed it and disrupted it is the term we hear today. So obviously, so there was a uh, Swiss theologian, his name was Karl Barth, and he said that Christianity was separated as an abyss from the inherent godlessness of national socialism. All right, so they could not be further from each other. But the Nazis tried really hard to make them compatible. So how'd they do that? Well, they just redefined things here and there. Little things, simple things, seemingly unimportant things. So the first thing they did is they said, well, Christianity is the polar opposite of Judaism. And Jesus was the perfect anti-Semite. And the Old Testament had to go. Way too Jewish. And they demeaned the people in it. They claimed that Moses married a Negro woman. So they canceled Moses. And scriptures were, were changed. Just a couple words here and there at first. right? So Matthew 21, about where Jesus flips over the tables... And he says, "My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves." The German Christians—that was the name; that was their official name—the German Christians—they changed it. They changed "den of thieves" to the German word of for uh, department store, which were almost all owned by Jews. Hitler called Jesus our greatest Aryan hero. He was Jewish, by the way. (laughs) Our greatest Aryan hero. And they got rid of all the you know Hebrew terms like Jehovah, Hallelujah, Hosanna. Got rid of all that. Jerusalem was changed to heavenly abode. Uh, in hymns, they changed the hymns. Like cedars, the cedars of Lebanon was changed to the firs of the German forest. And I bring these up because people, as this was happening, Christians thought, "Oh, no big deal. There's a word here or there. Like, what's the what's the difference? What's the difference? Cedars of Lebanon." Furs of the German force. Okay, sure. Den of thieves. Department store, though. That, I mean, that's, I, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. This is no problem. And it just got worse and worse. Obviously, in a very postmodern way, the leaders of the German Christians, they said, you know what? Jesus never wrote anything down himself. So we should move beyond the written word entirely. The line was, a demon always resides in the written word. So now there's not. So now they can just turn Christianity into whatever they want completely, right? There's no more written word anyway. There's no Bible now. The baptism was changed from into the body of Christ into the community of the Volk, the people. The communion went from you know the bread and juice no longer represented the bo- body and blood of Jesus, but instead it was the body of the earth, firm and strong, remains true to the German soil, and the wine was the blood of the earth. So it's just blatant paganism. And then it wasn't long before Jesus had to go. Because Jesus preached love and grace and forgiveness and repentance. <laughs> Things that were not not really high up on the, the Nazis' the prayer list. So Jesus had to go. And another thing that's amazing about this, sin had to go. Jesus had to go because Jesus talked about sin. Here's the leader of the Christian uh, German Christians. A people who, like our own, had a war behind them that they did not want, that they lost, and for which they were declared guilty, cannot bear it when their sinfulness is constantly pointed out to them in an exaggerated way. Our people have suffered so much under the lie of war guilt that it is the duty of the church and of theology to use Christianity to give courage to our people and to not pull down into political humiliation. So now the Germans they don't Germans don't sin. It was too mean to talk about sin. The Bible talks about sin. You can't have that. It's mean. It's hurt. Haven't the German people been victimized enough because of World War One? So sin's gone. There's more. But do you see it? Do you see the digression? So a little bit, it gets in. Devil gets a foothold and gets worse and worse. Starts out, well, we're just going to change the word to den of, den of thieves a department store. And then they start, they don't use those Hebrew words. And then they get rid of the Old Testament. And then they cancel Moses. And before you know it, Jesus is completely gone. Germans can't sin and the Bible justifies genocide. Do not give an inch of the truth. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. So good to be back here in the Freedom Hut, filling in for Buck Sexton. He will be back on Monday. My name is Mike Slater. I live out in, uh, in San Diego and uh, love Buck, been a fan of Buck forever. We've worked together forever, and uh, awesome to be here want to uh, talk about this here for the hour. Uh, I read this article from Scott Barry Kaufman in Scientific American. It's about people who have, a, in his words, a tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Raise your hand if you know that person. There's a couple aspects of this. First is this person is constantly seeking recognition for one's victimhood. They lack empathy for the pain and suffering of others. so They're narcissistic. They're frequently ruminating about past victimization. Things that have happened to them years and years ago. But the one I want to focus on here is moral elitism. This is another part of it. They have a moral elitism. Quoting Kaufman, he said, they perceive themselves as having an immaculate morality and view everyone else as being immoral. When the truth is, Almost all these people doing the riding and the whining and all the rest. They're in no position to be lecturing anyone else. The other day I picked up Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Have you read it yet? It came out a couple years ago. its um, I got my bookshelf here. All books, but in the in the, in the living room, there's a couple books I got there. And this one's been sitting there for two years since I last read it. And I just walked by it, finally, and I saw it. And I was like, oh, pick it up. So I picked it up and uh, opened up to chapter six, rule six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Gosh, how perfect is that today? Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. So he starts off uh, with the extreme, right? School shooters, mass shooters, this is an extreme example, right? But these people who they feel so angry and so bitter to the world, that they take the ultimate judgment of humanity into their hands and they kill people. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. The first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain murdered Abel. Not a great start to the whole like humanity thing. And this wasn't just murder of someone who was innocent. This was murder of someone who was ideal and good. And we have the same thing happening today. There's people who really think that we can bring about utopia on earth if we create the right institutions. Now, to create the right institutions, you got to kick the bad people out. You got to cancel them, the racists. Got to get rid of them. Well, who's racist? Everyone. <laughs> then we'll have that utopia. And you think, you're like, geez, do, do, does no one, no one sees how this has been tried before? And it went poorly. Uh, people they may read history, but well Jordan Peterson says people people can read history, but it's not easy to understand history if you're not reading it properly. What does that mean? What does that mean if he's not if you're not reading it properly? So he tells the story of a patient he had, and it was a woman who was wildly naive. Her parents taught her that adults were angels, literally. So she's super naive growing up, and then something really bad happened to her in her twenties and her whole worldview collapsed. And she couldn't function anymore. And she was a college graduate and all the rest. And he says, but didn't you read any history? She's like, yeah. And he says, well, didn't that disturb the whole adults or angels thing? And she said, yeah, I read it, but I compartmentalized it. So the first part of her treatment from Jordan Peterson was to understand malevolence because she'd been hurt by it, so she needed to understand it. And the book that he had her read was called Ordinary Men. And it's about these German policemen during World War II, The German policemen who were sent to Poland right after the Nazis took over. So They were wartime police. And these were decent, normal, middle-class guys. And the author of the book highlights the transformation that these guys went from normal guy next door to people who were taking pregnant women into the fields and shooting them in the back of the head. You're like, how could a... And it's a brutal book, and it's about how an ordinary person... And I know you're thinking right now, you're thinking, oh yeah, but I would never do that. And that's Peterson's point. (laughs) It's a brutal book about how an ordinary person and people can very easily transform into a Nazi murderer. Here's
4: Peterson on here. And I had to read that. I said, but don't you compartmentalize it. This is about you, right? This isn't about someone else. When you read history, you think, well, that's about someone else. It's like, unless maybe you're a victim and you identify with the victims. It's a very rare person who reads history and identifies with the perpetrators. But unless you read history and identify with the perpetrators, then you don't understand history at all. And so who wants to understand that? And I get my students. I said, look, I've told them this for 30 years. Here's something you have to understand. If you were in Nazi Germany... The statistical probability is overwhelming that you would have been yep. a perpetrator. Yep. Right? You think you would have rescued Anne Frank. It's like, think again. Those people are very, 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 very rare. They put their lives on the line to do that. They put their families' lives on the line to do that. You think you're one of those people. Really. It's mm-hmm. like that, all that means is that you know nothing. You know nothing about yourself. You know nothing about people. You know nothing about politics or economics or history. It's a harsh lesson.
2: Can we read history and see myself in the perpetrator? It's hard because when we read history, we're always the heroes. That's the moral elitism that I was talking about before. Like, I'm perfect. I'm wonderful. But all these other people and all these protesters and rioters that are out there now, they think they're so wonderful and so perfect. But in the past, oh, everyone before me, they were all awful. Because I'd be an We'd all be abolitionists back in the day of slavery, right? You ask any kid today if they were alive in the 1800s in the South, if they'd be an abolitionist, and every single one of them would tell you they are. They would be. Oh, I'd definitely be an abolitionist. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) No, you absolutely would not. Because there were very few. But we all like to think we would. Bill Maher, even a couple weeks ago, he said who are about cancel culture? He said, who are these perfect people out there in the world today who have never made any mistakes of any kind? And he, sa- he said, uh, his next line was something like, and don't they think it's going to come around and, and bite them in the, you know what? And no, they don't think it will come around because they think they would have been abolitionists. They think they're perfect. They're moral elitists. They're perfect in every way. So what do we do with this? See, I see there's three ways you can handle it. You can naively go through life thinking you're a wonderful person. And then meanwhile, you're canceling people and treating people terribly and being a bad person, even though you think you're so great. You can know you're a bad person and then be a bad person. That's true too. Or you can know you're a bad person and then be a good person. But that's hard. And there's no fourth option. There's no know you're a good person and be a good person. That's not not possible. The best you can do is know you're a bad person and then be a good one. Peterson, in his book, he talks about another client of his. Uh, Her mom died when she was young. Her grandmother, who she was raised by, was a terrible, terrible person. And her dad was an addict, just a bad life. And he said, my, my client had a son. And she perpetuated none of this with him. He grew up truthful and independent and hardworking and smart. And instead of widening the tear in the cultural fabric that she inherited, she sewed it up. She rejected the sins of her forefathers. Such things can be done. We're going to share a story coming up at uh, in the next hour of uh, Johnny Kim. It's one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard of, of, a, of a traumatic childhood redeemed. Of someone who had every reason to be bitter and angry and, and treat people horribly the rest of his life. And instead he went on to live is living, well I'll tell you he'll be a household name soon. Johnny Kim. He rejected the sins of his forefathers. He knew his capability of being a bad person, and he actively is working always on being a good one. And that's the deal. When you're a victim of evil in the world, you can either perpetuate it or you can end it. Nietzsche Nietzsche talked about this. So Peterson says, start small. Start small. He says, have you taken full advantage of the opportunities offered to you? Are you working hard on your career or are you letting bitterness and resentment hold you back and drag you down? Have you cleaned up your life? If the answer is no, here's something to to try. Start to stop doing what you know to be wrong. Start stopping today. Don't blame capitalism. Don't blame the radical left or the iniquity of your, of your enemies. Don't reorganize the state until you've ordered your own experience. Have some humility. If you can't bring peace to your own household, How dare you try to rule a city? Before we get to the ultimate example of that in the next hour, I want to share a uh, uh, mythical example. And then, uh, you know, we already mentioned Sultanitskin, so we'll do it again. We'll do two Sultanitskin references in one day.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast
2: on freedom hut mike slater here in san diego filling in for the great buck sexton thanks so much for being here and giving us a chance i know you want to just change the dial right now because you're like i wanted buck this is not buck i'll try to make it worthwhile for the next few minutes here i want to give an example of of uh, of what we were just talking about here um people overcoming trauma conquering it breaking the cycle doing something heroic let me do a let me do a mythological one first, and then we'll get to a real life story. Hercules. So when I think Hercules, I think uh, what's the Hercules Hercules? What what movie is that? Doctor Doolittle. What's, what's the movie? Whatever you know, you know what I'm talking. About. I think that, and then I think uh, like the Disney movie or whatever. But we need to change that. Uh, you heard of the twelve labors of Hercules? So these were the, the king told him to do these impossible tasks. And he did them all. Uh, Killed this lion, killed this nine-headed hydra snake. Uh, The whole thing, right? My favorite was the, um, there was a task that was supposed to be humiliating. That's why the king had him do it. It was humiliating. It was impossible and humiliating. He had to clean out the king's stables. Huge stables. He had like a thousand cattle, right? He had to clean out the king's stables in one day. Impossible and degrading. Because at least, I mean, at the other, like if you had to go fight this, the, the dog that's uh, protecting the gate of Hades, and you lose, uh, you could die a hero's death. right? But if you, if you die under filth of the stables, right, there's nothing heroic about that. So that was the point of that one. And he did it. And he did it by redirecting a river. And the river redirected and flushed out the whole stable. But anyway, the point is, why did he do these things? I always thought it was... I just assumed because he was super strong and he liked to do impossible things or... He wanted to prove that he could, or he liked the challenge, or he was looking for fame. He wanted to live with the gods for eternity, or, right? He wanted, he wanted the girls. No. He did it because he was looking to make amends. He, he wanted to be punished for the terrible thing he'd done. So what did he do? Real quick story. Zeus was married to Hera. Hera. But Hercules was born uh, between Zeus and another woman. So Hera was jealous and vengeful and awful, so he tried; to, she tried to kill Hercules a couple times. And later she cast a spell on him, making him go crazy. And in his madness, Hercules killed his wife and two children. And when the madness wore off, he was just wrecked with grief. So he went to Apollo and he begged to be punished for what he'd done. This was an act of penance. He wanted to repent repent for what he did. And to do so, he had to confront these impossible labors. And the metaphor here is these are these are the things that we have to confront in our own lives. Right? we got to clean out our own stables of our life. Things that seem equally impossible. Now, in Christianity, only Jesus can do that. But even... Like going to Jesus and Hercules going to Apollo and the Oracle of Delphi, like both of those take incredible courage and humility, which goes back to Jordan Peterson's main point. So those are two things that were in very short supply of humility and courage. So Hercules, my point is Hercules wasn't trying to take over the world. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't looking to rule over other people and to become a king himself. He was trying to get his own house in order. We need to do whatever Herculean task. Let me flip around. I, let me say me, I need to do whatever, I need to do the Herculean task that I need to do today, and I need to do it every day. And when you do, what a triumph that is. I got two minutes. Let me give you a, a the short of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We talked about him earlier. Uh, he was a soldier on the front lines against the Nazis. Um, Afterwards, the Soviets threw him in a prison labor camp where he got cancer. He had every reason to be resentful and bitter. Like, this is the, I get one life and this is it. This is the life I get. He had way more reason to be angry than people do today, for the most part, right? Similarly, we, we, we talk about, on my show, we talk a lot about former slaves who weren't bitter about being a slave. But we're supposed to believe people are bitter today because of a legacy of slavery from 150 plus years ago? Give me a break. And when you learn the life of people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it really takes your concerns, takes them down a notch. Here's Peterson. He said, during his many trials, Solzhenitsyn encountered people who comported themselves nobly under horrific circumstances. He contemplated their behavior deeply. Then he asked himself the most difficult questions. Had he personally contributed to the catastrophe of his life? If so, how? Let me stop here. That is a question that no, none of the rioters, protesters, none of, no, no, because of moral elitism. None of those people are asking themselves that question. No one's asking them, geez, how have I contributed to the sins of the world? And you think, well, can Solzhenitsyn, he, he's in a Soviet gulag. Like how, how? Now he thought about the sins he's committed to his life. He thought about how many times he did things that he knew he shouldn't have done. He thought about how many times he betrayed himself, betrayed his moral code, how many times he lied. And he took his life apart, his life apart, and he rebuilt it anew, and then he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which when it was released outside of the Soviet Union, just destroyed the credibility of communism that people were pretending to ignore for so long. And Peterson said one man's decision to change his life instead of simply cursing fate shook the whole pathological system of communist tyranny to its core. He got his own house in order then changed the world. Coming up at the top of the next hour we're going to share the story of Johnny Kim who is a a man who Your kids and grandkids must know, and everyone will soon. And I'm super grateful for that. So we're going to do that in about 30 minutes. Coming up, though, we should talk about um, Kamala Harris a bit. And uh, I was thinking, what is the precedent? Is there any precedent at all to Biden, to no one thinking that Biden's going to make it through the next four years? If he wins. He won't. But if he does. That's pretty wild that 49% of Democrats are like, oh, yeah, no, he's not going to survive. He won't live. (laughs) Like, what? There actually is a precedent to it. It was 100 years ago. Tell that story next. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Going on Freedom Hut. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton today. I, uh, I guess I got to give a hot take about Kamala. Is that, is that like required? for this? Uh, let me do the, the very, very quick. Bottom line is not going to move the needle at all. Um, Don't worry about it. Uh, That's it. That's the bottom. There's nothing else really that needs to be said. She's not going to be the person that's going to drive voters to the polls. We know because she ran for president just a couple months ago. So 49% and it didn't go well. 49% of Democrats, 73% of Republicans, but 49% of Democrats don't think that Joe Biden is going to make it his four-year term if he wins. That is a stunning admission. Like this whole thing about Joe Biden's mental acuity or whatever, this was framed recently as like a a, a vast right-wing conspiracy. But you have 49% of Democrats who are like, oh yeah, no, he's going to die soon. (laughs) What? Or, oh yeah, he's losing his mind. He's got dementia or something and he's not going to, he's not going to make it. That's amazing. So is Kamala going to be the person that people are going to be like, well, yes, I'm not really voting for Biden because he's going to die, but I'm definitely going to vote for Kamala. I can answer that with great certainty. Like, we have a pretty good idea about this. No. When she ran for president a couple months ago, she got 844 votes. For a little comparison's sake, Marianne Williamson got 22,000. Now, in Kamala's defense, she dropped out before the main primaries, but that's the point. She dropped out before main primaries. She couldn't get any excitement at all when she ran for office. Why would anyone believe now that like, like now people are going to get really excited. So Trump's happy. Phony Kamala. <laughs> Slow Joe and phony Kamala. Uh, Joe Biden, he really needed to pick someone outside of the game. Democrats don't have a good bench, right? The whole thing, all the time, the whole primary season, all the Democrats were bemoaning the fact like, this is the best we got. Amy Klobuchar. And even in the VP hunt, it was like, oh, you know, Tammy Duckworth. <laughs> Tammy Duckworth. What are you talking? About? So all the Democrats the whole time were bemoaning the fact that this is our bench, and then Biden picks someone from the bench. What are you doing? You really like, Biden really had to pick someone like Oprah. I mean, you're laughing right now. I know you don't want, but I'm, I'm saying you had to mix up the game. That's why it was Trump's big appeal, is he was an outsider. Biden is the ultimate insider. He's been in D.C. for 48 years. This is my favorite Joe Biden fact. He's been in D.C. for one fifth of the entire existence of the U.S. Constitution. So the time that the Constitution has existed, he's been in D.C. for a fifth of that time. Okay, He's the ultimate establishment guy. And then he picks a cop? <laughs> All right. So no Democrat's going to be excited about that. So Biden needed to flip the whole game up. He needed an Oprah or a Serena Williams or something, or Cardi B, I don't know. Someone outside of the game. But... He didn't, so. Let's talk about this uh, mental acuity issue. Uh, I don't know how Trump's going to play this. Like, Trump has to address it somehow. But it's tricky because if Trump's team does it too harshly, then they're they're picking on the old guy and everyone's going to feel bad for him and it'll backlash on Trump. So he's got to do it in an interesting way, and I don't quite know how, but... Biden can't hide until November. I know November is not that long away. I mean, the election's only in two and a half months. But there's a lot to do in the next two and a half months. We've got a couple of debates, if nothing else. Biden is so fortunate. No one's happier than Joe Biden that there was COVID politically. Because we already, already would have had months of events and speeches and interviews and all this stuff. And he's been able to escape past all that. Before all the COVID stuff, everyone was talking about how Joe Biden's handlers, the whole point was we got to keep Joe away from the cameras. And the only way to really keep Joe Biden away from the cameras is worldwide pandemic. And he got it. And he's been able to do the noble, heroic thing and stay hidden. Pretty amazing. So he's pretty fortunate. But is there any precedent to this? Because in normal times, there's no way he could have hid from the cameras this long but in the past maybe you could have so the closest thing I could think you got to go back a hundred years so we'll start October 1919 literally a hundred years ago is not that wild October 1919 for six months before then Woodrow Wilson was touring all across Europe negotiating the treaty of Versailles so he got back in September and he started a, a nationwide speaking tour to get people on board with the League of Nations And he went from train station to train station all across the country, giving a speech about the League of Nations. But on the train, people were worried about his health. He was a hard worker. He worked nonstop. He oversaw World War I. He was the president during the Spanish flu. He got the flu in April of 1919. So on the train, he was getting sick and and lost his appetite and his asthma would get worse and he was complaining about headaches and... And then he got to Colorado, and his face muscles started to twitch. He got super nauseous, and he had a splitting headache. And then the next day, the left side of his mouth started to sag, so no one can deny it anymore. This was September 26, 1919. So Woodrow Wilson's people, they canceled the rest of the tour. The train sped back to D.C. So September 28, they got there, and he actually walked through the train station himself, and he shook a few hands, and they whisked him off to the White House. And October 2nd, a doctor visited him. And Woodrow Wilson fell to the floor on the way or to or from the bathroom. And he fell to the floor and they got him back on the bed, the doctor and the wife, his wife. And the doctor left the bedroom and told his aides, my God, the president is paralyzed. So for the rest, this is the end of 1919, and the election was November 2020. So for the rest of the year, he stayed in his bed and they kept everyone away. He actually tried to run for a third term. He was trying to like deadlock the convention, but that didn't work. He was pushed aside by the party. But it took a while before people knew the severity of his illness. And just to finish up that part of the story, um, three years later when he passed away, his final words were, I'm a broken piece of machinery, and when the machinery is broken, I am ready. And then the next day, his his last words were Edith, his wife, which we'll get to in a second. But for all that time, he was paralyzed on on his left side. He had partial vision in his right eye only, so he was blind. He was confined to his bed. No one saw him except for his wife and doctor. And that was the case for the entire last year of his presidency. And that's why historians and others say that the first female president was Edith Wilson because his wife had to do everything. So the question though is how was he able to hide it so well? Enter Louis Seibold, reporter at the New York World. June 18th, so halfway through this whole thing, June 18th, 1920, he wrote an article. Here's the headline, Correspondent in three hour visit finds president's mental vigor unimpaired. Executive gains 20 pounds in two months, and he does more work now than before. That's how you read headlines in 1920. Uh, let me read a little bit of the article. Uh, nine months of courageous battling to repair the consequences of illness has neither daunted the spirit nor impaired in the slightest degree the splendid intellect of Woodrow Wilson. Real quick, people complain about biased media today. Media has always been biased. This is 100 years ago. Listen to this garbage, right? This is like uh, the media today talking about Obama's pant leg and uh, the CNN reporter when Kamala was running for president uh, taking video and uploading video of her shopping and trying on this fabulous coat. I mean, it's all the same garbage. It's been like this forever, literally since our founding. The newspapers were originally just like partisan pamphlets they spread around. So it's no different. During the three hours I met with the president, I saw him transact the important functions of his office with his old time decisiveness Method of keenness, method and keenness of intellect, appra- intellectual appraisement. The correspondent heard him dictate his decisions on matters of great governmental importance with fac- with facility of expression and directness of meaning, that indicated no impairment of his mental of his efficient mental machine that has known only the hardest kind of work for forty years. All right, so it goes on and on. Uh, here's a good line. He talks about the president, how he went walking to these different places and taking care of business and speaking clearly and intelligently and awesome. Uh, it has the same angular face, quite as full and cheek, and not the least shrunken in the temples. It was the same face registered in a mental picture eight months before, and they were unmistakably the Wilson eyes, keen, searching, and snappily intelligent. Okay, so that was the article, and everyone's like, Oh, wow, Woodrow Wilson's doing fine, no problem. All of it was made up. The entire thing was made up. Woodrow Wilson couldn't walk. His entire left side was paralyzed. He couldn't see. His attention span was like 60 seconds. There were not hours of conversation. He couldn't sign anything. He couldn't do anything. The interview was a total fake. Never happened. Wilson's press secretary made up all the answers. Now here's the real kicker. Lewis Seibold won the Pulitzer Prize for that article. He won the Pulitzer Prize for that article that he totally made up. Now, I share that story because every reporter today who's covering Biden is trying to pull a Seibold. And they think they're heroic in the process. They think they're going to win a Pulitzer because of it. And who knows? These days they probably could. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: Hey, I'm Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Uh, one last quote here from this made-up article 100 years ago about Woodrow Wilson. Oh, he's fine. Totally fine. Totally made-up, one uh, of this, Pulitzer. This is a quote from Wilson in the article, but again, made-up. Well, I'm coming around in good shape and could do a lot more things now if Mrs. Wilson and Dr. Grayson would kindly look the other way once in a while. <laughs> so that was a pretty funny line. So uh, last thing about Kamala. Um, again, won't move the needle. No one's going to be excited to vote for her. They weren't excited to vote for her, but we talked about that in the last segment. Here's the the, the thing that uh, her campaign needs to do. They need to make her the center point. And you see the media already playing this a bit. There was an NPR uh, graphic the other day, and it, it said, Kamala Harris, big letters, Kamala Harris, chosen as Joe Biden's running mate, like in little tiny letters. And then the picture of Kamala was in front of Joe Biden like from the shoulders up. So Kamala was in the front in the foreground and then Joe Biden was in the, in the background. Like that's weird. Like that's not that's now not that normally is done. So they're, the media is already playing this game but Kamala's campaign needs to do the same and they need to make it historic. And if you don't vote for her, you're racist. This is, this is what they've been doing for everything, right? So they need to do the same thing for her campaign here. If you don't vote for her, you are the glass ceiling. You want to break the glass ceiling? Be a part of the solution. You have to vote for her because it's historic. And uh, Trump's team will be fine. They're going to frame her as an unlikable authoritarian. Throwing parents in jail for their kid's missing school when she was the district attorney in San Francisco. And not only hard on crime, but cruel. (laughs) Cruel to people. That's how they're going to frame her. As a California progressive extremist. Piece of cake. So that's the the, uh, narrative that's going to be. Historic decision versus uh, California progressive extremist. Now the media again—they're going to carry the water. You, the, geez, for the next two and a half months, it's going to be Joe Biden and Joan of Arc. Are the two? That's, that's, Joe Biden chose Joan of Arc to be the bravest, most brilliant, most successful woman you've ever seen in your life. She is. She is Gandhi, Rosa Parks, and Oprah all rolled into one. And you can never ever say anything bad about her ever. Do you hear me, media? You saw that group? Um, they called We Have Her Back. This was before they, uh, Joe Biden's team announced who it was going to be, even though I think they probably already knew, but uh, they sent it to all the editors and bureau chiefs and political directors and editors and producers or whatever, saying you can't, don't be racist or sexist. Uh, avoid sexism and racism by uh, avoiding commentary on Biden's running mate's ambition which Kamala Harris has a lot of. Just ask Willie Brown. Uh, Her relationship with partners and staff, her likability, her looks, her tone of voice, whether she's likable or electable, and any reporting on the heritage of black women or women of color that perpetuates a misunderstanding about who is legitimately American. I don't even know what that means. Uh, You can't use a picture of uh, her looking angry lest it perpetuates the racist tropes that suggests unfairly that women are too emotional or irrational in their leadership. Leadership. See, that's exactly what I was talking about. So, this is interesting. So, as I said, the, her campaign has to make it out to be racist if you don't vote for her. And here's—they just called it a racist trope that suggests women are too emotional to be in leadership. That's not a racist trope. That would be a, a mo- that would be a sexist trope. <laughs> but they didn't say it. They said it's a racist trope that women. Are too emotional so no matter what it is you're a racist if you say you don't like her policies that's racist if you disagree with something she ever said in a speech years ago you're racist you can't talk about her ambition, her ambition you can't talk about her her family you can't talk about her lack of kids that's sexist you can't and racist you can't talk about anything you can't talk if you if you ask her a question about joe biden that's racist oh you're asking the black person about joe biden If you don't ask her anything, oh, she can't speak for Joe Biden, you don't think she's smart enough to answer questions, right? you can't do anything. If you ask her a question like people would ask Sarah Palin, like questions about Russia or whatever, if she doesn't know the answer, you can't say anything about that, that's racist. You can't do anything. And certainly if you're black or of color, then you can't say anything bad because now you're betraying your race. And you must vote for her because it's historic. (laughs) Amazing. Don't cave to the rhetoric stop already stop letting it work I want to come back with one of my favorite stories I've heard in a long time conservatives need to tell more stories there is a narrative going around about America and about our culture that we are racist sexist and all the rest and it's not true so we need to tell better stories and I want to start with the story of Johnny Kim if you don't know him now I guarantee you you will very soon well you will if you stick around we'll do it next Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton spread the word Thanks for listening to the
0: Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. So glad to be here in the Freedom Hut again. My name is Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. I know you're very disappointed. You tuned in for Buck. I'm not Buck, but it's the way it goes sometimes. You you had Attorney General Barr the other day. That's amazing. And now, now me. But it evens out, right? You got to keep it even. And let Buck have a day off every now and again. He does hours and hours of <laughs> radio days. Unbelievable. Um, but I'm honored to be here. And uh, I look forward to Buck getting back. Uh, I think you're going to like this story, though. Someone called into my local show the other day. I'm in San Diego. And they said, Slater, how do we beat the narrative of today? Right? This Marxist... Everything's a battle between the oppressors and the oppressed. How do we beat that? And I said, we need to tell better stories. The good stories, the good true stories are there. We just need to tell them. Because the left is very good at telling convincing stories. On a micro and a macro level. Like On a micro level, they're they're good at telling stories of the poor and downtrodden victims. And then macro, they're also very good at telling people how how we all should feel. Like, you should feel aggrieved. You, you, you entire group of people should feel aggrieved. You should feel bad, bitter. You should feel angry. And it's easy to do that, right? This is why Marxism is so appealing, right? You have this utopian vision, which we're right around the corner from. It's just that there are these people that are in the way. And they're in your way. And everyone who has more than you got it from stealing from you see how appealing that is as opposed to the million other things that could that are the reason why this person has more than you do it's no they stole it from you this appeals to as Jordan Peterson said the Cain-like aspect of the human spirit that everyone who got something got it in a corrupt way so this not only justifies my envy, which is the, the worst of all emotions, just, just, it'll destroy you. So it not only justifies it, but it also justifies all my actions that I would take to level the field. And it makes me look virtuous when doing it. <laughs> that's That's amazing. Right, so so if you're you're walking around and you feel you feel envious and you feel aggrieved already a little bit, you're telling me that this envy is good and understandable and justifiable, and I can do whatever out of it, and I'm noble and virtuous. It's very appealing. Resentment is very powerful, and people use it to manipulate you. There's a. Uh, so that's Marxism, that's the story that they tell. Uh, I just finished this book called um, Sex and the Catholic Feminist. It's so good, it's by Sue Ellen Browder. I was uh, sitting on the counter the other day and my, my wife saw it she said, are, are you a Catholic feminist now? I was like, no, 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 there's a reason it's called that, trust me, it's like, and a great, great book. It's all about the feminist movement and the sexual revolution, and everything, it's so good. And she has this line, she says, stories speak to our hearts. They tell us not only how we might live, but how we should live. And that's why we must watch the stories we tell and the stories we trust with a vigilant eye. We've been told a lot of stories for a long time that are not true. And that feed off of the worst instincts inside of our human nature and manipulate us. We need better stories. And I want to tell the story of Johnny Kim. His parents were immigrants from South Korea. He was born right after they came here, it was in 1984. And his dad was a violent alcoholic. From as young of an age as he can remember, he had this desire to protect his younger brother and his mom from from dad, and it was nearly daily. For months at a time, on and off, his mom would be scared to be home at night. So she would be at home during the day, and she would make the kids dinner, and then she would leave and she would sleep somewhere else. And then their dad would come home at night, drunk, and the whole thing, right? One day, he came home early, and his mom was still there, and he was furious. And Johnny's telling this story, and he remembers the day. It was February 21st, 2002. And Johnny could smell the whiskey on his dad's breath, and he, he knew, I mean, he smelled that all the time, but he just knew that there was something different about this moment. There's even even more tension than normal. And his dad looked at Johnny, who was 17 at the time, looked at Johnny and said, Well, here it is in his own words. This is Johnny Kim on Jocko's podcast.
1: My father came up to me, and some of the last words he said to me was, I'm sorry, Jonathan. And he pepper sprayed my face. Um, And then all I hear in the kitchen is my mother screaming for help and saying, he's got a gun. So I then... You know, fight or flight. You do what you need to do to protect the people you love. So I got up and I did my best to to, to fight him and get that gun. Um, and you know, fought as hard as I could, as as strong as I guess a 140 pound year old kid could do at the time. Um, but I I lost that fight. I still have a scar right around here um, from when my father was he was able to get a hold of a dumbbell nearby and smash my head in with it and uh, I think um, they kind of turned the fight and he was able to get his gun out of his pocket
2: got the gun out and they were pleading with him and Johnny said by the grace of God Johnny kept saying, uh, "It's not too late. It's not too late." And by the grace of God, he shot it in the air, and then ran out the back door. So mom called 911. Cops came, ambulance, whole thing. Johnny went to the hospital to get his head stapled up, and he got back. Like imagine that day so far, right? Gets back home, and he know he walked in to his room, and he noticed that the furniture in his room shifted a bit, because his room has access to the attic, and he noticed that the furniture moved to gain access to the attic. So Johnny told police that he thinks his dad is hiding in the attic. So police came, sectioned off the area, they confronted his dad, and as Johnny put it, shots were fired and my father was killed. So this is right up there. I'm not in the business of ranking childhoods, right? But this is right up there with like, one of the worst childhoods imaginable, right? Terrified his entire life. Torturous. Like, every, every once in a while, his dad would wake him up in the middle of the night with a cold glass of water to his face and then have his son pick out something that his dad would destroy in front of him. And his dad did that to hurt his mom, right? So like that's cruel. Terrified his entire life of his dad. And I'm sure he even thought that he was somewhat responsible for killing his dad, right? I mean, he's the one who told the police that he was hot, right? I got to take a break. Let me come back. I want to play this line from him that is unfathomable. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then I want to tell you what Johnny Kim is doing today. And why you will know him soon. You will know his name. And now you will know his story. We'll do that next. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show Podcast.
2: Hey, Freedom Hut. uh, I'm Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. We're telling the story of Johnny Kim. So if you're just tuning in real quick, uh, traumatic life, cruel father almost shot and killed the entire family This is awful and he's telling a story and I'm going to tell you what he's doing now in a minute here, he's telling a story and it, it's, it's like oh that's the, the worst thing ever and then he says this
1: all those experiences while they were terrible at the time I wouldn't take I wouldn't trade any of that for anything. I would never want to trade that because everything that happened helped form me into the person I am today. And we'll talk about it. The teams helped channel that into good. What?
2: (laughs) Think about that sentence. You're telling me, You're telling me, Johnny Kim, right? God pulls you up, you go to heaven, and God says, all right, Johnny, you got a choice. You can go back and relive your life again, the abuse, the fear, almost getting killed by your father, the whole thing. You can live that life again, or you can live the privileged life of Mike Slater, white, middle class, great parents, happy life, whole thing, which do you choose? You tell me Johnny you would can you would choose your life again with the torture the fear the abuse the trauma Yeah Because it made me who I am today That is an amazing like that is a life-changing perspective Reminds me of a story of Booker T. Washington, former slave, emancipation Proclamation came out when he was uh, nine, so he was freed, and then he went to go work in the salt mines, and he talked about how dangerous it was, and things would explode, and you get lost in the dark, and it was just awful, and he wrote this. This is in his autobiography called Up Up From Slavery, which you have to read. He said, in those days, and later as a young man, I used to try to picture in my imagination the feelings and ambitions of a white boy with absolutely no limit placed upon his aspirations and activities. I used to envy the white boy who had no obstacles placed in his way of becoming a congressman, governor, bishop, or president. I used to picture the way that I would act under such circumstances. Isn't that right, it makes perfect sense, right? He's in the salt mines, and he would see kids walking to school, and that's what he wanted more than anything, was to go to school, but he couldn't. You thought about what it was, what it would be like to be white, and what it would be like to be live a life where you just do whatever you want. In later years, however, I confess that I do not envy the white boy as I once did. I've learned here's the line. I've learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. And looked at from this standpoint, I reached the conclusion that often the Negro boy's birth in connection with an unpopular race is an advantage, so far as real life is concerned. With few exceptions, the Negro youth must work harder and must perform his tasks even better than a white youth in order to secure recognition. Now a lot of people look at that today and they're like, oh, isn't that awful, isn't that terrible? And Booker T. Washington said, no, it's great. Out of the hard and unusual struggle which, through which he is compelled to pass, he gets a strength, a confidence that one misses, whose pathway is comparatively smooth by reason of birth and race. From any point of view, i had rather be what I am, a member of the Negro race, than be able to claim membership with the most favored of any other race. I share that because these are two men who have every excuse to be bitter. Every excuse, genuine, rightful excuse, right? These aren't people who have microaggressions. Oh, he, um, this person said uh, something. No, no. These people have real, real reasons, but they did not let it consume them. And in fact, they used their trauma for good to go and serve others to the point where, if they had to do it all over again, they would choose the exact same life they lived. Come on. Now, we as conservatives, we need to share more of these stories. So our kids and grandkids can grow up knowing that when bad things happen, it doesn't have to ruin them. You don't have to ruminate about it. You don't have to harp on it. You don't have to be bitter about it. You don't have to complain about it. You don't have to whine about it forever. In fact, it can make you stronger. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I got to give the kicker the story. Johnny Kim. What do you think he What do you think he did with his life? Yeah, if you guessed a Navy SEAL, you'd be right. He became a Navy SEAL. Now, if you guessed Harvard Med School graduate, you'd also be right. He went to the SEALs and then Harvard Med School. And you think, oh, okay, Slater, what are you telling me? Maybe he's an astronaut, too? Yep. Johnny Kim's an astronaut. That sounds like a joke. He's a Navy SEAL, then went to Harvard Med School, now he's an astronaut. And he's in the, I think it's called the Artemis Program, which is set to go to the moon in the next couple of years. <laughs> but that's like a joke, right? Like, like he goes, uh, Navy SEAL, then doctor, and they're like, oh, what are you going to do next, become an astronaut? Like, oh, you know what? I heard someone, they said, yeah, guy can't hold a job. <laughs> Look what he was able to accomplish. Because he didn't let bitterness consume him. Could have. That's the power of a story. Let me end with this. Um, Johnny Kim, he's at the police station, and the detective comes to tell him about his dad.
1: The detective I talked to, he said, son, I'm sorry to tell you, but your father is dead and this is one-on-one in a room and i was just emotionless just stone-faced and he said i take it that this is not bad news is this good and i said it i'm just relieved sir and he said, I understand, son. And uh, it's, it's just a day for so many reasons that, uh, that helped me be reborn into the person I wanted to become, that I've always wanted to become my entire life. And I knew from there that maybe, just maybe, I had what it took to be a seal.
2: Sumner Redstone had just passed away. He said, success is not built on success. It's built on failure. It's built on frustration. Sometimes it's built on catastrophe. Do you have what it takes to be a blank? Not even in spite of the things that have happened to you, but because of those things. Mike Slater, fill in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word.
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's going on, Freedom Hut? Mike Slater, filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Give the man a day off. i will be back on uh, on Monday, better than ever. Just uh, to wrap up the Johnny Kim story, which is one of my favorites, that's the power of story. <laughs> and we got to get back to him if we want to take, take this back, take the narrative back of, of what America is. And who we are. So on my local, uh, my local show, I'm here in San Diego, and on TV show, Buck and I are both on the first. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about telling the story of ancient Greece and how they became a democracy, and Rome and how it became a republic. And, you know, we just think like, oh, Greece was a democracy, yeah, yeah, but how did it? How? <laughs> oh yeah, the Roman Republic. Yeah, how did it become a republic? I mean, you've, you've heard of, maybe you've seen the Magna Carta before, you've heard of it. Uh, How did that happen? How did England create that? I mean, these, these are moments in world history that made us today, made America. These are, this is our story. I know it's way over in Greece and Rome and, and England, but this is America's story. All of these happened in out of moments of chaos and tyranny. Richard Lyons, he wrote a book called The DNA of Democracy, which is fantastic. And he calls these the, uh, the crucible of democracy. A tyrant would come. It was too much. Something, there would be something that would trigger it. It was just too much. And the good people rose up and liberated everyone. And that happened all the way to America. But it came out of tyranny. That's the point. So that's a macro example. The crucible of tyranny led to freedom. But it's true on a micro level too, the crucible of tyranny in Johnny Kim's life, in Booker T. Washington's life, in Frederick Douglass's life, in Josiah Henson's life, we just go on, there's billions of examples, people we don't even know, your life perhaps. It's true for every individual. And what if we told this truth to our kids today, the story of people overcoming obstacles? What if that was the narrative? That we shared with kids, as opposed to, oh, here's all the victims, and you are too. Man, here's someone who triumphed, and you can too. How much different would our world be today? That's a totally different planet we're living on. So how do we get that back? We got to tell the right stories. Maybe uh, hey, let, let let Buck know you want me to fill in again, I'll, and we'll do we'll do that. We'll take a whole uh, we can do it hours and hours of. I'll try to do it in an hour. We'll do the story of Greece and we'll do the Greece democracy and we'll do the story of the Roman Republic. I think we we could do both in an hour. And then we'll do the Magna Carta, but that has to be another half hour. We'll do that next time I feel in. Um, All right. Changing gears here a bit, kind of. This is Matt Kay. Have you seen this? I'm sure Buck did a segment on it. I missed it, but I'm sure Buck did. Uh, He's a teacher at uh, the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, which is a magnet public school. And he wrote a book, wrote a book about how to have a meaningful race conversation in the classroom. And he put this on Twitter. He's since deleted it, which is a bummer because his comments are bad, but the replies are even worse. He said, uh, let's see. So he said, virtual class discussions will have many potential spectators, parents, siblings, etc in the same room. We'll never be quite sure who is overhearing the discourse. What does this do for our inclusion and equity work? I am most intrigued by the damage that helicopter parents can do in honest conversations about gender and sexuality. And while conservative parents, it's you, are my chief concern, uh, I know that damage can come from the left too. If we're engaged in the work of destabilizing a kid's racism or homophobia or transphobia, how much do we want their classmates' parents piling on? And uh, so, let's we got to talk about this. So for the Billionth time, this is a, uh, but maybe this is the first time you've seen it, and that's why I play it over and over and over again for the last seven years. This is a clip from 2013, this is MSNBC, this is a promo, and I just want to be very clear, this is not a slip of the tongue. This was a written out, made many takes, edited, produced, signed off on through many layers of bureaucracy, and then aired multiple times on MSNBC. Here it is. So that's Melissa Harris Perry or Perry Harris or whatever. She was a Princeton, uh, professor at Princeton for a while. Uh, so they're not your kids, right? We've got to get rid of the private notion of the family. So for Marx and Marxists, the two obstacles that are in the way of a Marxist revolution are the church and the family. And in the, um, I was going to talk about the church. Sorry, I meant the church. Uh, let me say a quick thing about the church. For some reason, people think that uh, the Marxists are going to tear down every other aspect of society, but they'll leave the church alone. The single most important culture-making aspect of the individual and a society, you think the Marxists are going to march through all the institutions except for that one? <laughs> of course not. They're infiltrating the church as well. We talk about a, lot that, a lot about that on my, my local show and on the TV too. But The um, church and the family, and in the Soviet Union, every effort was taken to take over the ownership of children. And now, since then, feminists have taken over that same mantle. The goal of feminism was to get the woman out of the house. The greatest good was a working woman, climbing the corporate ladder. If you want to control the population, you break down the family. And if you want to break down the family, you pressure all the women to leave the home. And that's what feminism has done. I know so many women who have worked, 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 worked their entire adult lives, law school, med school, dead up to their eyeballs, and then they have a kid And they don't want to work anymore. But there is this huge societal pressure to get back in the workforce. You're not living your full life, your true life. You're not living the life a woman should live unless you go back to work. And they don't want to. But they feel this huge pressure that they must. And it's because they've grown up in this soup of feminism uh, for their entire lives. And it's a huge shame, but we'll table that for another day as well. We'll talk about that next time, too. Um, anyway, the left, so they want to get rid of kids and the church and, and family. So they replace it with this idea of the village. Now they've taken this concept of the village, which is definitely true, right? Like I have a village. It's It's my family and then neighbors and friends and extended family, and then the community and my church. That's a village. I have people I can call on. Right, everywhere for every different thing of my life, and it's amazing. It's the greatest blessing of my life is the, this village that that you have to create. By the way, you have to actively go make it. There's a great book called The Council of Dads of similar theme, but uh, you have to go make your village. The problem with the left's village is they've removed the dad from it, all the dads from the village with welfare, and they removed the moms from the home with feminism. So all that's left is the state that's the village they're talking about. It's not a village like your village. Their village has Gavin Newsom as the village elder or whatever, right? So it's a very different village. This is Rich Lowry. Uh, He says, as the ultimate private institution, the family is a stubborn obstacle to the great collective effort. Insofar as people invest in their own families, they are holding out on the state and unacceptably privileging their own kids over the children of others. These parents, they say, are selfish, small minded, and backwards. It's amazing. The family is the single greatest source of inequality of children and therefore of adults. The family is the single greatest source of inequality. That's what the left taught like the left's main goal, like anti racism and everything, it's all about equity, equality of outcome. What is the greatest driver of inequity? Family. That's the main driver of inequality. So you have to get rid of it. rid of it. If two adults get married, stay married, and invest in their children, I'm just talking time, not even money, just time, they will be way better off than the broken family or the family that may still be together but doesn't invest the proper time and love and a culture of learning and discipline in the family, even though everyone's still there. Right? Two totally different lives are lived. My kids are going to have a huge leg up over someone else's because my wife and I work really hard to produce a level of inequality over other kids. Now, that's not the goal. It's not like the goal is like, oh, we need you to be better than him. That's not the goal. The goal is we want you to be the best possible. And the effect of that is, well, you're going to be better off than that other kid over there whose parents don't invest the same. And I don't feel bad about it a lick. And neither should you. Do not let people shame you For doing what's best for your children. You saw a lot of this when the schools are shut down, so a lot of parents put together like these learning pods or these micro-schools or whatever, and the left came out and said, oh, that's so unfair. Nope. Listen, we can come up with solutions for everyone, too, but do not try to shame me from educating my children. Lowry says that the family is so essential to the well-being of children, has to be a constant source of frustration. To the egalitarian, egalitarian statist, a reminder of his limits of his power. <laughs> it's true. I got, I got in here, we got to take a break. But with COVID, there's going to be one of two ways we go here as a country. We are either going to embrace school choice, which is Rand Paul's plan. And I know Ted Cruz and even Trump the other day mentioned this, where everyone just gets a voucher for whatever, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 per kid. And you go spend it however you want, private school, public school, uh, homeschool, tutoring, whatever you want to do. It's your money. You go do what you want with it. Or we as a country are going to decide, and this election will make a difference, that this is just the end of all school, op- school choice options. No more charter schools, no more private schools, no more homeschooling, because we got to get rid of all inequality completely. We are going to move in one of those two directions. That is absolutely for sure. And obviously, I hope we move in the direction of more freedom. But these people, they want total control over your kids. To the point where they're like, oh, I don't even... Be aware, teachers, there's going to be parents watching when you try to do the work of dismantling their transphobia. <laughs> Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton's brother. the Wild.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: Hey, Freedom Hut, Mike Slater filling in for the great Buck Sexton today. Thanks for being here today. Hope you enjoyed it. It's our last segment. This maybe is not the best thought to kind of end on, but I will give it a shot. Maybe it'll come around. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, who I love very much. H-A-I-D-T. is a wonderful um, thinker. He wrote this. He said, When we look back at the ways our ancestors lived, there's no getting around it. We are tribal primates. We are exquisitely designed for life in small societies with intense animalistic religion, and violent intergroup conflict over territory. We love tribal living so much that we invented sports, fraternities, street gangs, fan clubs, and tattoos. Tribalism is in our hearts and minds. We'll never stamp it out entirely, but we can minimize its effects. Here is the fine-tuned liberal democracy hypothesis. This is a classic liberal, not Democrat. Liberal democracy hypothesis. As tribal primates, human beings are unsuited for life in large, diverse, secular democracies unless you get certain settings finely adjusted to make possible the development of stable political life. This seems to be what the Founding Fathers believed. Okay, so this is is so smart. So, democracy, like, we're just not built for this. Democracy is really hard. So you have to fine-tune a lot of different aspects in order to make it function at all. And it's very unstable. This is not normal. (laughs) This is democracy. And our founding fathers knew this. Now, the most important aspect of this was the individual. Our founders knew that man is fallen. Man is broken. Our nature is not good. Uh, James Madison in Federalist, I think 10, he said, the latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man, which is why they devised the system of checks and balances and states and federalism and The senators were elected by state governments, which is not the case anymore because of the 17th Amendment and all all this stuff, right? This is a finely tuned machine that they invented, that they created. (laughs) But we've messed with it, we've tinkered with it so much, and it's not finely tuned anymore. Just at the institution, like, like the Constitution, our federal government, and our systems of government, but we as people aren't as finely tuned as we need to be either. It's the classic story and I love it. It's a bit, you know, over 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 used, but it's it's so good and it's true. There's it the story of uh, Ben Franklin right after the Constitution was presented. Uh, this well, there's a couple of different tallies, but the, the story has become that a woman said, What have you created? And Ben Franklin said, A republic if you can keep it. My understanding is the actual story is someone came up to Ben and said, Well, Doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? That was right? kinda of let him a bit. And he said, oh, a Republic, if you can keep it, but it doesn't matter. The point is, if you can keep it. That's Ben Franklin saying, hey, guy, we created a finely tuned machine here for you. Just Are you familiar with the finely tuned universe theory? This is how I became a Christian. There's so many countless variables that must be precisely finely tuned in order for life to exist on Earth. In order for the Earth to exist in the universe, like everything has to be so that per- like if one little thing, like the like the rate of gravity or the force of gravity, if one little tiny variable was just a little tiny, then life wouldn't be possible. And it's impossible that that happened uh, randomly. Uh, same thing with the democracy, with America. Everything has to be so finely precise. And the most important thing is, these founders said that you can only maintain this if you are a virtuous people. John Adams, our constitution was only made for a moral and religious people. Benjamin Rush, the only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be the aid of religion. Without this, there could be no virtue. And without virtue, there could be no liberty. And liberty is the object in life of all republican governments. Governor Morris, he said, for avoiding the extremes of despotism or anarchy, the only ground of hope must be on the morals of the people. And Ben Franklin said, only virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Now, we've never been perfect, but there's always been an ideal of virtue that existed. There's always been an ideal. And today, even the ideal is attacked. And that's what I'm most concerned about. Kids growing up, not even knowing that there is an ideal to reach for. Not your kids, though. Not your grandkids. And that's the part where I'm encouraged. Thanks for letting me be here. I'm grateful. Buck's the man. He's awesome.
1: I hope I can do it again. Have a great weekend. Spread the word.